This is They Create Worlds, episode 153, Nintendo Playing With Cards. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. It's a new year. It's time to look to new horizons, a new dawn as it lays waste to this world we live in. And by looking forward, I mean we're really going to look back. Way, way back. To the 1800s. We're not even going to bother with those 1900s. Too new. (laughs) 1800s. And we're going to talk about everyone's favorite video game platform, Nintendo. Before Nintendo. Or at least before video games. That's right. We're going to take an in-depth look at the early days of Nintendo over two episodes, going all the way back to the uh, late 19th century. Wait, wait, wait a second. You actually know this is going to be two parts before the end? Yeah, so that probably means it's going to be five parts, but, uh, you know. Oh, great. Now we're doomed. (laughs) Yes, two parts. Uh, We can certainly cover it in that amount of time. There's going to be absolutely no video game stuff at all in part one. There might be a teensy-weensy bit of video game stuff in part two, depending on where we decide to end it. But we're not talking about video games. We're talking about playing cards. We're talking about toys. We're talking about instant food products, all the things you know and love from Nintendo. I know I do every time I play a Nintendo game and then the toaster pops up with toast. (laughs) Right. Though we make light a little bit, but in fact, we do need to remember that Nintendo's DNA is a card company. And in Japan, they still make cards. That is still a part of their business. Is it an important part of their business? Well, no, of course not. But it's still a part of their business. That is the DNA of the company. Before we get there, we have to go into other fields even more far removed from video games than playing cards. And I thought that we could start this off with a little special sneak preview. The very first paragraph, just paragraph, of my prologue of They Create Worlds Volume 2. Oh, right. You're still working on Volume 2. Oh, God, don't remind me. This could be completely different by the time it comes out, but of course, I deliberately left Nintendo out of Volume 1, even though we got into 1981 and Donkey Kong and all of that, because if I'd introduced Donkey Kong at that time in that place chronologically, then I would have had to spend dozens of pages explaining the entire history of Nintendo before getting there, and the book was long enough. The prologue of Book 2 is kind of catching us up with Nintendo and setting the stage for their first major success in the global video game industry with Donkey Kong. Not their first video game, not even their first video game success, but first global video game success. To get the ball rolling here, I'm going to go ahead and set our scene with the first paragraph of the prologue of They Create Worlds, Volume 2. A world exclusive. <laughs> In 1885, the modernizing Meiji state in Japan embarked upon a massive public works project in the ancient capital of Kyoto, called the Lake Biwa Canal. With transfer of the imperial capital to Tokyo following the Meiji Restoration, Kyoto entered a period of decline as population and industry departed the city in the emperor's wake. 
The new canal was intended to improve water transit to the city and to generate hydroelectric power in order to lure back industry. Constructing the canal required over 30,000 barrels of cement, nearly eight times what the entire Japanese cement industry could produce in a year. This created great logistical challenges, both in terms of importing product into Japan and providing transport for domestic product to reach Kyoto. The situation proved a golden opportunity for a local limestone wholesale company called Haikyo that had been importing cement into Japan since 1874 but was not a major player. Expanding the Haikyo cement business through the canal project became the primary objective of one of the company's most ambitious young employees, Fusajiro Yamauchi. So that connects, right? We're talking about video games, so of course we're talking about cement and canals, right, Jeffrey? Yeah, I didn't hear any word in there about blah, 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 Nintendo. Ah, but there's one word that should have stood out at the very end there, that word being Yamauchi. Yeah, I'm trying to place exactly where I've heard that before. Well, that is the family that founded Nintendo. As we know today, which is something we didn't realize until research that's been done very recently, is that the Nintendo card manufacturing company was not the first entrepreneurial business that was done by the founder of the company, Fusajiro Yamauchi, because he actually grew up in this construction business, this cement business. And so we have to start by looking at that. In fact, he didn't even start as a Yamauchi. The hero of our story is a young man by the name of Fusajiro Fukui, who was the eldest son of a family that had been involved in civil engineering and construction in Kyoto for generations, obviously in a very clan-heavy, family-heavy society such as Japan still is, but especially was back then. Trades were passed down generation to generation to generation, so that was his business. It was also customary at the time that if a prominent individual, prominent businessman or merchant or some such, did not have a male heir to continue the family business, that he would actually adopt someone into the family for the sole purpose of being the new person to carry on the family tradition within the business. Not all of these family businesses actually circulated in biological families. There was a lot of adopting going on. In 1872, Fukui was actually adopted by an individual by the name of Naoshichi Yamauchi. We don't know a lot of the details about this, this history being way, way back in the day and in Japan, but presumably, even though the Fukui family was involved in construction, presumably Mr. Yamauchi's company was a larger, more prestigious company, and this was a chance for upward mobility. Fukui was presumably identified as someone who was bright and hardworking and knew the industry well, and someone that uh, Naoshichi believed could keep his own business going into the future. He wasn't adopted because he was orphaned or something like that. It's just that he became a Yamauchi because there was no Yamauchi to carry on the business. He was the best candidate because he knows the business, he's a go-getter, he can be trained and molded to take on this role. Exactly. That's presumably what happened. Again, we're speculating here, but it's pretty sound speculation, I think. 
He was adopted in 1872, but he actually continued working at his own business, the Fukui family business, for several more years after that. And then in 1885, he joined the Yamauchi Company, which was the company that I mentioned in my little reading there, uh, Haikyo, which was, as I said, a limestone wholesale company. Limestone being an important building material, also used in cement, though also important building material outside of that as well. When he joined the company, this project was still going on. I mean, this was a major, major construction project. This is one of the big projects at the beginning of this kind of resurgent period for Japan. The Meiji Restoration was a period of modernization. It's when the shogunate was finally overthrown once and for all, and the emperor, the Meiji emperor, was restored from a mere ceremonial figurehead to someone who was actually in power. And the Meiji Emperor surrounded himself with younger men, with modern ideas. And Japan, which had isolated itself for so many centuries, was now going to modernize and look outward and become a truly modern and vibrant nation. And of course, this led them down a path that is very controversial and terms of its uh, colonialism, its militarism, and then finally its spiral into World War II as the principal aggressors it tried to carve out its empire in Asia. But from the perspective of the country and its economy, this was a time when they were industrializing, modernizing, importing modern educational ideas and manufacturing ideas and military ideas and everything else from the great powers of the West, particularly France, Germany, and Britain and the United States. It's a period of great revitalization, and this canal project is meant to bring Kyoto, which had fallen behind a little bit, up into these modern times. I'm by no means a historian of Japan or of the Meiji period, of the Meiji Revolution. I don't think I butchered any of that history too much, <laughs> keeping it in broad terms like that. As I said, there was a real logistical challenge to doing this canal because the interior Transportation infrastructure just was not good around Kyoto either because uh, Japan was so far behind. So just getting the cement there was a problem. It was not a major port like Osaka or Nagasaki. The cement wasn't being shipped directly there. It needed to be brought in from other ports, but the infrastructure between cities wasn't that good for this kind of heavy business. Our protagonist here, Fusajiro, figured out a way to get cement into Kyoto. He worked with Mitsui, which was a major import-export company that remains, I think. It certainly did into the 20th century, and I think still does, though I could be completely off-base on that. A major import-export company in Japan. He worked with Mitsui to get products shipped to Kyoto through a wide variety of transits, uh, through canals and rivers and all of this, a really great undertaking, but one that shows again that uh, Fusajiro was a guy who really had it going on. I mean, he wasn't just this guy making playing cards, which I think has probably been the dominant idea of who the Yamauchis were from David Chef's Game Over and, and these other early sources. This guy was a serious businessman with a serious grasp of logistics and of how to move product around the country, which, as we'll see, will be very important to the spread of Nintendo. I think it's fair to say that without his background in this earlier business, even though it's a business that's completely different, I don't think Nintendo would have come to thrive as it did. Well, you need to understand distribution. 
that's very critical for practically any kind of company. You have to be able to distribute your product effectively and cheaply to where your patrons are. Exactly. We have that very exemplified in the United States with how much land is here. The need for some very vast and intricate distribution models, even at a smaller scale like Japan, that is difficult especially at this time where transportation infrastructure isn't that great. Mm -hmm. We don't really have cars running around everywhere like we do now. Trains are probably not as advanced as they are. Getting anything from point A to point B might even be down to horse and buggy in some areas. Absolutely. Wagons and whatnot, and the canals and river transit. I don't think Japan's railroads had developed yet, though of course they would, very famously so. Yeah, that's important stuff. And so even though, you know, we're talking about cement, <laughs> which is not very uh, not very close to video games at all, this is the crucible in which Fusajiro Yamauchi was forged. And he was so successful at this that Mitsui named uh, Haikyo its official agent in Kyoto for all of its cement products. So, I mean, this was big in expanding the influence in the business of Haikyo. What does this all have to do with Nintendo? Well, Fusajiro, in addition to being a brilliant, hardworking entrepreneur, was also an avid player of card games in his leisure time, particularly the Japanese card game of Hanafuda. Card games are not endemic to Japan. They were not invented independently in Japan. They were brought in from the outside. In the early days, in the 15th century, when Japan was still open to trade before it completely closed itself off, Portuguese traders brought playing cards with them as they became some of the first Westerners to reach Japan and establish trade relations with Japan. Cards were introduced at that time in the 16th century. But then they were banned in 1633, because this is the period when the shogunate began to turn inward and began to reject foreign influences and closed its borders. Very little trade was allowed with Westerners. The port of Nagasaki was the one place where foreigners could trade, and they were mostly isolated to, uh, I believe, an island in the harbor. They weren't even allowed much in the city itself, and only like the Portuguese and the Dutch, I think. I'm freebasing here, but something like that. Only a couple of European powers were even allowed. Not even all the Western powers could come to Nagasaki. To quickly tie this into video games, any of you Final Fantasy XIV fans out there may remember in the Stormblood expansion, the main capital hub of Kugane, in their Japan analog, which was this one city where Western trade was allowed in the context of, of Final Fantasy XIV. That's very much based on Nagasaki and the way Japan was closed to trade for centuries before Commodore Perry opened it back up on behalf of the United States in 1854. Because foreign playing cards were banned, despite their popularity and despite their use in gambling, people in Japan still wanted to play card games, mostly for gambling. But then in 1648, all playing cards, not just Western cards, not just foreign cards, but all playing cards were banned because in this kind of moralistic push that the shogunate was making, gambling was seen as an evil vice and cards were used for gambling. 
cards were just entirely banned. But of course, just because face cards were banned didn't mean that people didn't want to keep uh, using them as with any vice, whether it be prostitution or drugs or slot machines, uh, something we've covered several times on the show. People still find a way. After that ban in 1648, there became kind of a cat and mouse game between the government and individual entrepreneurs. They would hide the fact that they were making playing cards by making them appear to be works of art in some way, shape, or form rather than cards. So they wouldn't have the clubs and the diamonds and the hearts and the one, two, three, four, five, and all of that. They would have images and symbolism that would translate into suits and numbers without actually looking to be suits and numbers as a way of fooling people. You know, you'd sell these little packs of cards and it looked like they were just these decorative things, but in fact, they were playing cards for gambling. Someone would come up with a new way of doing it and then eventually the government would catch on and then they'd ban those cards and then someone would come up with another way and then those would be banned and and on and on and on through the centuries. Hanafuda, specifically, was developed sometime in the late 17th century. The term literally means flower cards. The reason for this is that a set of Hanafuda cards has depictions of flowers and other types of flora, like leaves. It has pictures that capture different seasons and different tableaus and all of this. Basically, those arrangements corresponded to 12 suits, each with four cards, that each represented a different month of the year, the the 12 suits. That's why there were 12 of them. So there'd be four cards that represent January, and they'd have scenes that would be recognizable as having something to do with winter and and January, and the arrangement of the images on there would let you know the value of the card in terms of the numerical values. It was like a code in picture to hide the fact that these were gambling devices, gambling implements. I'm looking at a few pictures of these cards right now, and it is pretty pretty. You got these four cards that sort of go together, and you could see like, hey, I could take these four cards and put them on my wall as an art piece. I could put them as a placemat if I were to somehow bind them together or something. They look well done and just looking at them as an outsider never even hearing of this game before i can't really tell what's what as far as a number but i can sort of see the theme of yeah here's your winter cards here's your spring cards here's your summer cards absolutely we have to remember that they were works of art because of course we're talking about the early modern period we're talking about a period when you didn't have manufacturing so these cards of course were not made with plastic as all cards are made today they're made with paper layers of paper rolled on top of each other and all of that had to be hand glued together there was no mass production of these and of course the images had to be painted by a skilled painter Now, as time progressed, as you got into the 19th century, there was printing technology. It's not like every single card had to be painted by the artisan. The artisan could paint the picture, and then it could be printed on each individual card. But even as the printing process could be mechanized, the card creation process could not be. Those layers of paper had to all be glued together by hand, by craftsmen. It was very easy to make mistakes 
because it's not a mechanized process. And so not all of the cards would come out perfectly. They wouldn't be perfectly stacked, perfectly layered. Things wouldn't be perfectly centered. You would have lots of mistakes and and those cards would have to be rejected. So it was a very intensive process that was done by a handful of skilled artisans doing these decks rather than like big factories turning out playing cards like you might think of today. Hanafuda had its time in the sun, and then in 1841, they were also banned as part of the Tenpo reforms, which was kind of one of the last big crackdowns, I believe, in Japan on this kind of thing before Commodore Perry's visit and the gradual opening up of Japan, which ultimately led to the Meiji Restoration and the Meiji Revolution some decades later. When Japan was open to Western trade again, foreign playing cards for the first time, you know, what traditional face cards that we know very well in the West uh, that are still used today, of course, started making an appearance again because there were now Westerners, there were Western traders, there were Western embassies. Westerners were not just confined to Nagasaki anymore. They could be in the capital, for instance, at embassies and whatnot. So as the country opened up, these playing cards start infiltrating again and start gaining some popularity and interest again. Because these foreign playing cards are now legal, there's great pressure to now legalize traditional Japanese cards as well. Finally, in 1885, playing cards become legal again, and there's a real fad for Western playing cards and Western card games that starts in 1886 and spreads throughout the country, not just Tokyo, but also into the south, into Osaka, which is kind of the second city of Japan and is very close to Kyoto. So cards are starting to enter the consciousness again, and more importantly, cards are now legal again. Fusajiro was a big player of Hanafuda. He really liked card games. So now that the cards were legal again and manufacturing of them could come out into the open, he decided, for whatever reason, I mean, we know he was a great entrepreneur. We know he was a shrewd businessman. And so I think he just saw an opportunity to kind of mix business with pleasure here. He decides that he will open his own small Hanafuda factory. He buys a house, just a small house in Kyoto. He sets up about a half dozen craftsmen there, and he sets them to work making Hanafuda cards. This is a side business. He's still the cement guy. Nintendo is just this little side business because he could buy a small property. His cement business is very successful. That's no big deal. He could hire a few craftsmen then they could make these cards. Now, he said this is a side business. Is it the point where he calls the company Nintendo? It's like, Nintendo playing cards. Get your Hamafuda here. This is the founding, September 23rd, 1889, of a company that was alternately called Yamauchi Fusajiro Shoten, was called the Marufuku Nintendo Card Company, or was called uh, Yamauchi Nintendo. We don't quite know the interplay of all of these names, Marufuku and Yamauchi Nintendo. Obviously, Yamauchi is the family name. But this is it in 1889 when this company is founded as basically this little side business. So we don't know exactly where the Nintendo name came from. That's an interesting story, and that's actually the story that we need to come to next. The fact of the matter is, is we don't know exactly why the Nintendo name was chosen. 
that's something that's been lost to history. Even Hiroshi Yamauchi, the longtime president of the company, who was the president who took over in 1949 and was president of the company all through the video game era all the way into the early 2000s. Even he, being a family member, being a great-great, I think, grandson of the founder, even he doesn't truly know. And the problem is has to do with the imprecise nature of Japanese kanji. The Japanese do not have a phonetic alphabet. Well, they do, but their primary alphabet is not their phonetic alphabet. It is their character-based writing system, pictographic writing system, of kanji. Kanji are essentially sounds, and and I'm probably butchering this for any philologist or, or linguist, they'll probably shake their heads, but I mean they're individual syllables, individual sounds, and individual characters that evoke a certain concept or idea, and they can embody multiple concepts. Kanji have multiple meanings, and their meaning often depends on the other kanji that are surrounding them. So it's a very imprecise system in many cases. So the name Nintendo, Nintendo is three kanji. It is the kanji nin, it is the kanji ten, and it is the kanji do. Those are the three kanji that make up the name. Nin kind of means something like let it be. You know, just like don't worry about it, just let it go, let it be. Ten is often associated with the idea of the gods. And do is a word that means kind of sanctuary. Let the gods rest in sanctuary? Not let the gods rest in sanctuary, but let the gods decide our fate. You're letting it be. Nin, let it be. Ten, let the gods decide your fate. So Nintendo is generally translated as leave luck to heaven, or do your best, let the gods decide your fate. That's kind of the unofficial official translation. I mean, that's what Nintendo itself says that it means now, is this concept of leaving luck to heaven. Now, Florent Gorge has an alternate theory. Florent is a French historian of Nintendo. I think he's probably the leading expert on Nintendo today. He's in the process of writing a humongous multi-volume work on the entire history of Nintendo that is currently four volumes, and those four volumes only get up to the Game Boy. They're not humongous tones like mine. They have a lot more pictures and whatnot, but he's probably the foremost expert on Nintendo today, and he speculates that there could be a different meaning because the 10 syllable is also associated with the Tengu, which is a creature of Japanese mythology known for its incredibly long nose. The Tengu actually came to be associated with Hanafuda and other card games during the long period of time when card games were banned, because inns that would have secret games of Hanafuda going on in in the back room, the way a patron would signal that they were there to play a game is they would like conspicuously, continuously like touch or rub their nose to indicate that they were looking for a game. And then if the innkeeper had a game going, they would pick up on that and escort them back to the game. Because the Tengu has a long nose, and this whole nose-rubbing thing was part of the gambling scene, the Tengu actually became very associated with Hanafuda, and 
several early Hanafuda manufacturers actually had names that incorporated that Tingu imagery. Two that Gorge mentions, I mean, I haven't researched early Japanese Hanafuda companies, but two that Gorge mentioned, for instance, are Oshi Tingudo and Matsui Tingudo. Those were two Hanafuda card manufacturers that took this Tingu idea. He posits that it may not mean leave luck to heaven, but it may be a sanctuary of Hanafuda. You know, the Do part is a sanctuary, and the Ten is from Tingu. It could be interpreted as a company that is allowed to make Hanafuda, a company that is free to do what it will with Hanafuda. He, he could be completely wrong about this. It's an interesting alternate explanation. It may well be that it really did have something to do with Leave Luck to Heaven. After all, Hanafuda card games, they are games that involve both skill and luck. So the idea that you do the best you can, you employ your skill in the game to the best of your ability, but then the rest is up to fate, is up to destiny, that also makes sense in this context. That's kind of where we stand today. Officially, it's Leave Luck to Heaven, but... Maybe it had a different origin, and and that's kind of the problem with the imprecision of kanji. Obviously, nobody was profiling Fusajiro Yamauchi at the time this was all going on. Nobody asked him why he named the company Nintendo. That's kind of what we're left with. So yay, Nintendo. Nintendo is one of a range of companies in Kyoto and Osaka that get into this Hanafuda business right after it becomes legalized. Yamauchi's kind of take on the business, his entree into the business, is he wants to be the prestige label, the prestige company. He hires the best craftsmen and creates the most beautiful artwork on the best of materials and throws out any card that has even a hint of imperfection so that every card in the pack is absolutely as perfect as can be. In order to kind of sell the prestige of this, he named the line of cards Daitorio, which is the word for president in Japanese. Presidents, presidential, big, serious, heavy. And then on the back of the cards, the back of the cards was an image of Napoleon Bonaparte. Really? Napoleon? Yes. Napoleon, before he was an emperor, was first consul of the French Republic, which was kind of sort of akin to a president, and there really wasn't a word for first consul in Japanese, so president is kind of a rough approximation of that. Napoleon is somebody who was a great figure in history, a powerful figure in history, and a figure that was becoming a fascination to the Japanese as they opened up to the West. They had the Daitorio line of Hanafuda cards with a picture of Napoleon on the back, and this was kind of the epitome. They were expensive, because since he threw out so many cards, I mean, their manufacturing costs were such that they had to charge a premium, but they were considered top of the line and only the very best and kind of created this idea of Nintendo cards as kind of a luxury item for the best of the best. So they start in Hanafuda, and very quickly in 1890, they also move into another type of game called the Hayakunin Ishu. I'm sure I'm butchering the Japanese, but that's not important. This is a very different kind of card game. This is not a gambling game. It's actually an educational game. There it is. Nintendo already getting it into the educational product. Right. And is a very literary game. Hayakunin Ishu means, essentially is translated as a collection for 100 poets. The way it works is 
you have in the box a collection of 100 famous poems from Japanese history by esteemed poets. Then you have a set of cards that have just the last phrase of the poem written on them. You spread out all the cards on the floor, you know, in a rectangle or whatever you want to do it. It's, I don't think there's a set arrangement. It's not like a pattern. But you set all those cards out with the last phrase, and then you have one player who picks randomly from the deck of poems and starts reading the poem on the card. And then everyone else, their job is to, as quickly as possible, locate and grab the card that has the last phrase of the poem being read. It's literary. You have to know something about Japanese poetry, and it combines this knowledge with the reflexes and skill of being able to grab the right card quickly. Uh, It actually evolved out of another educational game, which involved just having syllables of words. It was a way of learning Japanese characters, your first Japanese characters, where someone would read the—it was more for children—someone would read a word on a card, and then the other people playing would have to locate and grab the card that had the first syllable on it of the word that had just been read aloud. So it was a way of associating sounds with kanji. It was educational. This Hayakunin issue was kind of a more highbrow, more adult version of that game. And was very popular at the time. So these are the two products that Nintendo starts with. They start first with the Daitorio Hanafuda and then move into their Hayakunin issue. They're very much a card company. And it's all a side business for Mr. Cement here, Fusajiri Yamauchi. At first, these cards are basically only being sold in two locations. The factory itself in Kyoto has a storefront where people can buy these cards. And he also has a buddy in Osaka, which, as I said, is Japan's second city, and it's the biggest city in the south of the country. He has a buddy in Osaka, so he's selling them in Osaka as well. This business does okay at first, because these cards are very well made, they are very well regarded. But I think it becomes obvious pretty quickly what the problem is when you have a very expensive, very durable, very highly regarded product that can only sell to a small subset of the population. You saturate your market pretty quickly. Once you have a deck of Hanafuda cards, you have no reason to buy another. So what to do, what to do, what to do? Well, Fusajiro decides, okay, I have dedicated myself to perfection, but we really are throwing out a lot of cards here. What if instead of throwing out all those cards that have just these minor blemishes, remember, we're not talking about major, major errors. We're talking about even the smallest blemish is enough to disqualify a card from being part of the Daitorio line. What if we took these cards with a slight imperfections, marketed them at a lower price, and positioned them as our card for the mass market, for people of less refined tastes, if you will? That's what they did, and they start a second line of Hanafuda called the Tengu brand. So see, there's Tengu again. Mm. That's why the 10 in Nintendo may very well have something to do with Tengu rather than having to do with gods in heaven. Again, it's because Tengu and Hanafuda have been associated for a very long time. It's not surprising that he would choose that word Tengu, or that association with Tengu. I forgot one important point that I guess I'll mention here. It's almost too late, but whatever. The reason for the nose rubbing to be let into the Hanafuda game is, again, because of the way kanji work and sounds and different meanings. Hana, which is the flower portion of Hanafuda, is also the word for nose. Huh. So that's why rubbing your nose indicated that you were looking for the Hanafuda game. 
<laughs> Not just the fact that the character had a long nose. Well, what I'm saying is that's why Hanafuda and noses were attached together. And then Tengu and Hanafuda were attached together because Tengu have very prominent noses. All that symbolism. Japan, very visual, very symbolistic kind of culture. So not so surprising. He's expanded the business with the Tengu line, which is good. But then he makes his real breakthrough. And again, Fusajiro is really an entrepreneur that really seems to know his business, whether it's cement or cards, he's always got an angle and he is essential to kind of the Nintendo story. He realizes that now that these card games are legal again, there's a real boom in gambling. Especially in the city of Osaka, there's a real boom in game rooms where people go to bet money playing Hanafuda. Big rollers, big spenders, certainly some Yakuza involvement here and there as well. So this was kind of a shady side of the business. This wasn't a business that you dealt with directly. Like, if you were doing Hanafuda cards, you were ostensibly selling to the public, to respectable people. Now, obviously, these card sets were also being bought by these game rooms for use in these high-stakes games, but there wasn't a direct connection there because it was considered a little shady. Fusajiro didn't see shady, he saw an opportunity. So he started approaching game rooms directly and making a deal with them to use his Daitorio cards exclusively. The reason why this was a big opportunity is since these games were very high-stakes games, card decks would be replaced after every match because you could mark the cards and cheat. So they had to start with a fresh deck every time to make sure that there were no marked cards in the deck. So, I mean, they went through pack after pack after pack after pack at these places. Yamauchi positioned Nintendo as one of the exclusive purveyors to many of these top game clubs. That kind of expansion into this high-stakes arena combined with his expansion into the more mass market with the Tengu cards is what allowed him to become the dominant player, quite frankly, in Kyoto, in Hanafuda, while he's still running his cement business. Pretty crazy. (laughs) Exactly. Of course, I guess that can also go hand in hand if you got sort of like this gambling pseudo-mafia thing going on. If someone's marking the cards, it's really easy to get some cement shoes to express your displeasure. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, I'm not an expert on Japanese organized crime. There's been a lot of Yakuza involvement in the Japanese coin-op industry. We've kind of lightly touched on that in some of our previous episodes, like our Konami and Namco episodes. I don't know that Nintendo was ever really in deep with the Yakuza or in deep with gambling elements. Certainly in their later days, they weren't. I mean, certainly the toy company, the 20th century company, and the video game company, I mean, never, never any Yakuza ties. Even those people who tell oblique stories about how, oh yeah, everyone was involved with organized crime, always list Nintendo as one of the exceptions as a company that was not involved with organized crime. Was Fusajiro in a little bit with that element in this exact period in his life? Maybe, I don't know. I mean, that's way beyond what I'd be able to research and talk about. But I can definitely categorically say that Nintendo is not a company that was built on the back of organized crime. That definitely did not happen. But it's a fair point to bring up. So this is a good gig for a while, but it doesn't end up being the thing that keeps propelling the company forward, because once again, Yamauchi stays way ahead of the curve. Because as I mentioned a little bit ago, in addition to Hanafuda coming back and and these other local card games, the opening of the country to the West 
triggers a fad as well in the 1880s for Western playing card games and for Western playing cards, which are called Trump by the Japanese. Don't know exactly what the origin of that is, but Trump is a concept in many Western games, including, most importantly, Bridge, also Pinochle, Spades. There are a lot of games that use Trump. The idea of a Trump suit or a Trump card is it's a card that breaks the normal rules of the game and outranks other cards in particular situations, like for a very simple form of that in the game of Spades, Spades are a Trump suit, which means if you're able to play a Spade, a lower-numbered spade will always beat a heart, a club, or a diamond. In more complicated games like Bridge or Pinochle, Trump changes throughout the course of the game based on varying factors. But that's what the idea of Trump is and what a Trump card is. We're not talking about, you know, the Donald and that kind of stuff when we're talking about Trumps here. As these Western games were being played in Tokyo, and Japanese individuals were observing Westerners playing these games— They'd hear this concept of Trump getting mentioned over and over again as Westerners were playing the games, and so they kind of got to thinking that the cards themselves were called Trumps, as opposed to Trump being a particular rule on how the cards are played. So the Japanese actually call Western playing cards Trumps, or Trump cards. There was a big fad for this that was going on in the late 19th century, early 20th century. But they were all imported. No Japanese companies were making Western-style playing cards. Nintendo was most likely the very first Japanese company to make Western-style playing cards. The date is, again, shrouded in mystery. There have been several dates posited. The classic story, which does appear to be apocryphal, is that during the Russo-Japanese War, which was a conflict in 1904-1905 when the Japanese attacked Russian interests in the Pacific as a way of securing further power for their burgeoning imperial uh, colonialist empire. They won that war. They were very successful. Started with a surprise attack on Russia's main Pacific fleet. Where have we heard that one before? Hmm. (laughs) That is a valued Japanese tactic of that time period, of that imperial time period. Sneak attack the enemy fleet in port. Anyway, tangent, but that's what we do here. The story goes that, of course, there were prisoners taken in combat, and some of those Russian prisoners of war were taken back to Japan, and they were interred around Kyoto. And the story goes that when they were looking at things to help keep these Russian prisoners occupied, they were like, oh, yeah, I mean, they play cards. We can let them have decks of cards in the prison camp or whatever. But hey, where do we get cards? It's like, well, Nintendo's a card company. They can make cards for the Russian soldiers. That's kind of the uh, traditional story that was passed down, and it's possible they made cards for Russian prisoners of war. I mean, nothing that says they didn't, but those aren't the earliest cards. We know that the earliest Nintendo cards date back to at least 1903, which is a little bit before the war. They were actually, at that stage, Nintendo didn't have the equipment to make Western playing cards at that time, so they actually relied on a printer that was nearby to them called Watada Printings to do their first Western playing cards. I'm going to ask you a question that you'll probably know the answer to because I've kind of given it away a little bit. In Japan, what is the name of the company that does all the printing on the boxes for the Nintendo Switch? I'm going to go with the Watata Printing Company? Yes. Nintendo is still associated. Watata has done most of their manuals and boxes and flyers and everything else in Japan throughout the video game era. Right up to the present day in the Nintendo Switch. 
all the way from the early 1900s to present time, Wattata's has been this long-running printing company. One of their major clients is Nintendo. Exactly. And it started here with doing these Western-style playing cards because Nintendo had the idea to do it but didn't have the facilities. Wattata, being a printer, had the facilities to do it. So (laughs) isn't that wild? That is pretty crazy to think that some sort of business relationship like that would last over a century. Absolutely. Deep, deep ties. They start making Western-style playing cards right around then, 1902, 1903, somewhere in there. Maybe they make some for Prisoners of War as well, but they were definitely doing it before that. It just so happens that right in this time period, or maybe it's not a coincidence, maybe Yamauchi again saw this coming because he's such a great businessman. It was right in the kind of beginning of this period of imperial expansion. They had fought a war with China in 1894-1895, in which they had beaten up China and kind of become the preeminent Asian power. Then they did the Russo-Japanese War and started seriously carving out an empire at the expense of even the European powers around them as well. They knew that they were going to continue this expansion. They had great ambition, and they knew that funding this expansion was going to take a lot of money. A whole lot of money. And so in this period, the Japanese government is coming up with new taxes and new ways to fund their massive military and colonial expansion as they create this empire. One of the things they decide to do, which they take from the British, the Japanese are very adaptable as a society. And the Meiji in particular, they were taking best practices from all sorts of powers. They based their school system on the French school system, because at that time, the French were considered to have the best educational model in the world. They based much of their military development on the Prussians, the German empire, because the Prussians and the Germans were considered to have the best army in the world. This is what they did. Then they'd blend it with Japanese culture and Japanese values to create something unique. They weren't just copiers, but that's kind of a hallmark of, even today, we've talked about how in electronics, to bring this back into video games and stuff, we've talked many times before about how the Japanese may not invent something like a transistor or an integrated circuit or an electronic calculator or a video game. But once they see that, they will definitely perfect the heck out of it to a whole new level that was hitherto unfathomed. Exactly. They got the idea from the British to do a stamp tax, where paper products are taxed, and and you then put a stamp on the product to indicate that it's been taxed. I mean, it's very similar to why we put stamps on envelopes when we mail letters. It's a recognition that you have paid whatever price there is for putting out this product, so an inspector can tell at a glance, okay, these products are legit because the taxes have been paid. I see the stamp on the package. So they implement a stamp tax on playing card games, on card games, on Hanafuda and all of this other stuff in 1902. This is disastrous for the Japanese Hanafuda industry. Remember, we talked about this a second ago. These are not mass-produced. These are items of craftsmanship. You need lots of individuals working to hand-create all of these individual cards. You can't just go and grab some cardboard off the shelf, run it through a press of some kind to cut out standard-sized cards, And hand it off to Watata and go, all right, slap some pretty pictures on this. Exactly. The printing part can be automated to a degree, but not that card-making part. And so the products were already fairly expensive for what they were. The tax that was placed on them was basically the same amount 
as they were already being sold for. So the tax literally doubled the cost, doubled the price of the cards. Wow, that's really expensive. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. This drove the majority of the card makers out of business. So as I said, Kyoto was the center of the card industry. About 90% of all of the cards made in Japan were being made in Kyoto. And these were being made by dozens and dozens of little companies like Nintendo. You know, as I said, Nintendo only started with like six employees. You had dozens of these tiny little companies churning out these cards. There were about a hundred manufacturers, give or take. Over half of them go out of business because of this tax. 5,000 artisans are left unemployed. It's become too expensive. Only the strong survive. Only the ones that are able to find other ways to kind of make this work survive. Nintendo not only survives, but thrives because they moved into the Western cards. So they had another outlet, an outlet that was not nearly so complicated as Hanafuda cards, much simpler cards, much simpler card making process. Because he pivoted when he did, they were not only able to survive this period, but they become incredibly, incredibly successful. It's after that that we get the final stroke of genius from Fusajiro Yamauchi. Because again, with this tax, we need to find a way to get truly mass market. The only way we're going to be able to drive costs down and make this continue to work with this tax and everything is if we can get economies of scale. And that means really pushing cards all over the country. Remember, we talked about this a second ago. I mean, Japan's infrastructure is developing at this point. I mean, we're several decades away now, you know, a couple of decades away now from when they were doing the canal project and all of that. And it was really hard to get product into Kyoto. But still, the idea of national distribution just isn't a thing yet. There is only one product, essentially, that is distributed nationally throughout the entirety of Japan. And that is cigarettes, tobacco. There is a company called the Japan Tobacco and Salt Corporation that was established by an entrepreneur named Kichibe Murai in 1890. I can understand the Japan and tobacco part of it, but salt? (laughs) I don't know exactly why, but I assume it has to do with the fact that they're both kind of... I don't know exactly... I assume it has something to do with the fact that they're both products that were in high demand, but difficult to acquire, (laughs) sort of. I don't know. But yes, the Japan Tobacco and Salt Corporation, which was founded in 1890 and from 1904, had a state-sanctioned monopoly and completely controlled cigarette manufacturing and distribution in all of Japan. They were the one company, the sole company, that was allowed to manufacture and distribute cigarettes. So they were one of the very, very, very few companies that had a national distribution network in Japan. Now, if only Nintendo could leverage that somehow. Well, and here's the thing. Cigarettes. Two very important features of cigarettes. One, indispensable companion of gamblers throughout history. The idea of the smoke-filled gambling den is a cliché. And there's a reason for that, kids. That is a cliché. Exactly. And, And of course, it's because nicotine, the drug nicotine, has a calming effect. So someone who is doing something very stressful, very high stakes, and something where they need to control their body language and their emotions so as not to give anything away, are drawn to cigarettes 
because it helps keep them calm, cool, and collected during a high-stakes gambling game. So that's why the smoke-filled gambling room is such a thing. It's an indispensable product for gamblers, card players, and a cigarette pack and a card pack. Give or take are roughly the same size. Pretty much the same size. Fusajiro Yamauchi goes to Mirai and basically says, I've got this product. I've got cards. Cards are used by some of your biggest customers. They go hand in hand, playing cards and smoking cigarettes. They're the same size. So it wouldn't cause any kind of problem with your existing shipping processes. I would like to enter a deal with you to sell my cards through all of your outlets, through your national distribution network. Mirai was like, this makes sense. I like that. So they did the deal. Because of this, Nintendo playing cards became nationally distributed at a time when almost nothing was nationally distributed in Japan. We all know how traditionally, once something sort of gets into the Japanese zeitgeist of, hey, we buy this product, it's really hard to dislodge it. Exactly. Nintendo never looks back as the top card manufacturer in Japan throughout this period when that was its primary business. I mean, it's no longer the top card manufacturer in Japan. But for the entire rest of the time that card manufacturing was the principal Nintendo business, it was the number one Japanese card company in the business. So, yeah, here at the beginning of the 20th century, Nintendo is doing quite well. But Fusajiro has one problem. He has no sons. He forgot to do something very, very important. He has a daughter, but he has no sons. These Japanese family businesses need a patriarch to take over the business. Fusajiro does the exact same thing that his patriarch Naoshichi did with him. He arranges a marriage between his daughter and one of his best and brightest employees at Nintendo, Sekirio Kaneda and then adopts Sekirio into the family. So Sekirio Kaneda becomes Sekirio Yamauchi and becomes the heir to the Yamauchi businesses, both the cement company and the playing card company. In the 19-teens, Fusajiro starts stepping back from managing the company, starts giving more and more control over to Sekirio. In 1918, he completely hands over both companies, to Sekirio. He lives until 1929. I'm sure he keeps an eye on the business right up until he dies. It's his business that he started, but Sekirio takes over the reins in 1918. We don't have nearly as much information about Sekirio's time at the company as we do with Fusajiro, but we do know that he was Definitely also a shrewd businessman who understood the need, just like Fusajiro did, to keep modernizing and to keep pushing the company forward. He also is the one who decides that it's becoming way too much to run a successful cement company and a successful playing card company at the same time. So once again, just like Fusajiro, he has only daughters. He has two daughters. He arranges marriages for both of his daughters. In 1927, he splits the company. He entrusts Heiko to the husband of his younger daughter, Genzo, 
who was, of course, adopted into the family. So he became Ginzo Yamauchi. From 1927, the cement company is a separate company. Though, of course, when Nintendo moves into a modern concrete building a few years later, guess who constructs that modern concrete building for them? <laughs> yes, the Yamauchi concrete place. Exactly. And in fact, the Yamauchi family still owns that business. It, it has a different name now. There's been some shifts and whatnot in its history, but that cement business is still owned by the Yamauchi family today, the descendants of Ginzo. Yeah, that's still part of the business, but it's no longer part of the Nintendo thing. And I wonder if they still do construction projects for Nintendo. <laughs> I don't know. They probably do, though. Wouldn't surprise me, because it's still Yamauchi family. If you have Watada doing all this printing for him from the very beginning, I don't right. see why this would be any different. In fact, I'd expect it, considering yeah. the close family ties. Exactly. That's the Yamauchi family business today. Obviously, Nintendo no longer controlled by the Yamauchi family, by the other branch of the family, but the concrete business still controlled by the Yamauchi family. So that's the younger daughter. The elder daughter, he arranges a marriage with a craftsman by the name of Shikinojo Inaba, who came from a distinguished family of craftsmen that were not in playing cards, but were also well-known artisans. That's the branch that will be taking over the card company Nintendo. Now, Sekiro does not give up the card company right away. When he splits the companies in 1927, he takes over, well, I mean, he already was president of Nintendo, but he remains with Nintendo as the president and gives up the cement business. And then it is his intention to have the adopted son, the husband of elder daughter, take over that business when he dies. Fairly early on, he establishes a succession plan. Exactly. We don't know huge amounts of what Sekiro did with the company, but we do know that he did a lot of modernizing at the company. He formally incorporated it in 1933. He set up modern distribution structures. He started setting up equipment to mass-produce cards. He moved into that, as I said, the modern concrete building, finally moving the company out of the original house. They were in that original house from the founding until 1933, when they move into this other, more modern building. We know that he began very aggressively targeting international markets. At this point, Japan does have an empire. They have colonies in Korea, in China. He also markets to British India. He markets to the United States. I mean, they don't become a major player in the United States or anything, but he starts providing a more international reach. His adoptive father got their cards all around Japan. He begins the process of trying to get their cards all around the world. We know that he was also a big investor in real estate. He bought up a lot of Kyoto and used the profits from his real estate investments to kind of fund this expansion of the Nintendo company. That's most of what we know. I'm sure there's more to know about him, but that's kind of all that's come to light in the research I've seen. He is supposed to be succeeded by his adopted son, Shikinojo Inaba, but then in an absolutely outrageous scandal, Shikinojo abandons his family. He just takes off. Really? That's a big, big taboo then. Exactly. He just takes off, leaving behind his wife, Sekiro's daughter, as well as his young son, the first male heir born in this line in generations, Hiroshi Yamauchi. 
the man who would lead Nintendo for over 50 years and who would define so much of the company's philosophy and style and product strategy and everything else. So that seems like a pretty good place to uh, end part one. Do we have any idea why he ran off? I'm amazed to think of that. No, no. I mean, it's one of those things. I assume he just couldn't take the pressure. He decided it was all too much for him. I mean, that's that's normally why someone would do something like that. I don't know that for certain, but I think that's why he abandoned the family. Hugely, hugely scandalous. We'll talk about the fallout from that and the succession after that and about Hiroshi Yamauchi, the towering figure in Nintendo history, as we transition into the second part of what I'm now starting to think may be a three-part series on early Nintendo. But we only been an hour into this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but if we go too much further now, then suddenly we've done three hours and it's too late. Well, a bit of a lighter in length episode, but really an interesting one. What I will be doing for the show notes, and I encourage you to look at this. I'm going to throw in some information on how Hanafuda is played, some of the cards that are made, some of the stuff that Nintendo has actually put out. I will also put in some pictures and call-outs to playing cards that Nintendo has put out. We're a company that's had such an impact on so many aspects of video games, where it really came from, to think that it came from just doing cards. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's really a testament to the Amalchi family. All three generations technically skips a generation with Inaba abandoning the family, but the three generations that led the company from within the family, Fusajiro, Sekiro, and then Hiroshi, all three of them were clearly visionaries that clearly understood that Nintendo was a company that had to continue to grow and change and modernize or it would die. Even though on the one hand, it's kind of surprising to be like a playing card company became the biggest name in video games. (laughs) On the one hand, that's surprising. But on the other hand, if you look at the progression that we've already seen, and that, of course, will carry forward as we continue this episode, it started as a shop of just a few craftsmen. It had some okay local success. But, you know, it was kind of up and down. Then they got into Western playing cards, and they got into Western playing cards just as this new tax came in. And so while literally dozens of their competitors were failing, they expanded because they moved into something new and interesting and different, Western playing cards. They're still within their playing card milieu, but it's a different kind of product, and it allows them to keep going. So then they become very successful regionally. And then what do they do? Then they seize the opportunity to become big nationally and become one of the very few companies with a national distribution system. So they've taken another step in innovation, this one involving logistics. And is it no surprise that Fusajiro, who had to figure out how to get cement into Kyoto for this canal project, all connected, is the one that then figures out how to get playing cards out of Kyoto to the rest of Japan. So that's why the cement story is so important that even though that is not the Nintendo company, I think it's a good place to start the examination because it's like, here's a guy that understands how to move product throughout Japan. And if he hadn't figured that out, they wouldn't have become a big company. So this sets the stage. And there's further modernization under Sekiro, but it's really not until Hiroshi gets there that they start truly expanding out of cards. And of course, we'll cover that entire story in later episodes. Even though they remain confined to cards in these first few decades of their existence, even within that sphere, they were always innovating, always reaching for a competitive edge, an advantage, a new way to get their product out into the marketplace. And what Hiroshi does 
leading them into toys and into electronic games and then, of course, into video games is really an extension of that same entrepreneurial spirit, which is why even though we're taking a lot of time here talking about things that have almost nothing to do with video games on our video game podcast, I think it's really important to take this Nintendo history and go through it in some amount of detail so you can see that company DNA and how it allowed them to succeed when it finally does turn its attention to video games in the 1970s. We've talked about this before with other companies. The contrast is is that a lot of the other companies that have started off in something else and then transitioned into video games we're looking at you, Namco, (laughs) they had a much shorter run of it. They don't have a history that goes back to the 1800s. That is really the reason why we're spending the time on this is because we already do this with other major companies where we look at their entire history. We did this with Sega. We've done this with Namco. We've done this with EA. Gottlieb just recently. Yeah, Gottlieb. Most of that was just dealing with pinball and the formation of that. That wasn't really so much video games, but it laid the groundwork. It laid the stage for how this all really affected things coming down the line when they eventually did go into video games. It's really interesting to see how different companies just evolve over time and things that you wouldn't think of as being a video game company have such humble, weird, off-the-wall origin stories. Absolutely, because the interesting thing about video games is, and we've talked about this in some of our broader overarching episodes, is that video games emerged out of existing industries. They emerged out of existing commercial infrastructures. So there were very few companies in the early days, talking about companies that got involved in the 1970s or early 1980s. There are very few companies from that time period that were founded as video game companies. Atari is the only major super important company of the 1970s that was founded specifically as a video game company. Now, they weren't the only one. There were others that had smaller degrees of success, like Exidy and the like. You know, they weren't the only one solely founded to do video games, but all the others came out of pinball, or they came out of toys, or they came out of something else. Where they came from really influenced in a big way, I think, how they viewed the industry. We talked about this a little bit when we were kind of talking about the fights between uh, Nintendo, Sega, and Sony in the 90s, is that Sega was a coin-op company. Nintendo was a toy company, Sony was a consumer electronics company, and Microsoft was a software company. Their approaches to the video game industry... Completely different. And they really come out of those backgrounds. You can really see how their treatment of the industry is different because of where they came from. Nintendo, toy company, so they're all about experiences and play and just having fun and screwing around and having a good time more than they are about big, bold story and movies and all of this. Sega, being an arcade company, they were all about hardware, 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 keep changing the hardware. Sony, as a consumer electronics company, was all about building sophisticated machines and focusing on those machines and the games that run on those machines. And Microsoft has been a huge pusher into games as service, online connectivity and their Game Pass and all of this stuff because they see software as the big thing, not hardware. So that's being reductive, but you can kind of see the approaches in that way. 
So, you know, taking this in-depth look at Nintendo allows us to see where a lot of that was shaped. And we haven't gotten to the toy part yet, so we're, we're still early days, but we're already starting to get them there. And over another one or two or 20 episodes, we'll get them the rest of the way there. All right. Well, I guess I'm going to have to go get myself some Nintendo playing cards now and sit down to play some cribbage or something. <laughs> we will see you next time on Nintendo Takes Over the World. I mean, they create worlds. Bye-bye. <laughs> Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.